Hey everyone, and welcome to this special Soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. And for those of you who don't know, these Soapbox podcasts we publish here at Risky Biz are wholly sponsored. That means everyone you hear in one of these podcasts paid to be here. But uh, yeah, today's Soapbox is an absolute cracker. We are talking to Andy Robbins, and he is the principal product architect at Spectre Ops and one of the three original creators of the original open source version of Bloodhound. If you don't know what Bloodhound is, it is a tool that grabs Active Directory information and turns it into a navigable graph. So if you're an attacker, you land on a network, you enumerate directory information, and then you can map out a path to, for example, domain admin. Uh, You know, a path from where you are to where you want to be on a network. And uh, Bloodhound has been extremely popular with red teamers for years. To the point that it's kind of just a standard tool in the Red Team Toolkit, but uh, the team behind Bloodhound is now turning its attention to making Bloodhound a defensive tool as well as an offensive tool. As you're about to hear, Bloodhound Enterprise, which is the newer and shinier enterprise version of the software, has some absolute slam dunk defensive use cases. And I will say too that after the interview, uh, Andy gave me some information on the way that they price it. And it is extremely well priced, right? For enterprise security software, in terms of the value that it delivers, it's, yeah, it's really keenly priced and you should go have a look. Uh, I'll just say that I'm not going to talk specific numbers, but um, it was certainly a more affordable exercise than I realized. Uh, But here is Andy kicking off the discussion with a description of what Bloodhound actually is. I hope you enjoy this interview. You know, the easiest way to think of Bloodhound is that it is Google Maps for Active Directory and also nowadays Azure as well. So imagine you are an attacker, you're on the red team side, you're a pen tester, you get initial access into a target environment. So you have started at position A, maybe that's a computer, and you want to get to Z and Z is a domain controller or some kind of system that hosts some kind of like super secret data that you want to get access to. The secret herbs and spices. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> in this in this totally fictional soda company that you have gotten access to, Bloodhound will tell you uh or not not soda, fried yeah, chicken. Chicken, company. man. Come on. Let's <laughs> let's not get our metaphors too mixed up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bloodhound Bloodhound will tell you exactly what steps you need to take to go from A to Z. So just like Google Maps, I can plug in where I start, where I want to go, same exact thing. And it will tell you, you need to laterally move here. And after you do that, you need to steal this person's password. And then after you do that, you need to add them to this group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that... If there is a path, no matter how long or how complicated that path is, if Bloodhound has the right data in its database, it will find it for you. And it will present it to you in a way that is easy to understand in order to execute that attack path. So you feed it Active Directory information and it essentially creates a graph, right, that you can then navigate. I mean, that's the basic description, right? Now, where does it get... How do you feed it info, right? So why don't we start there? Yeah, so... Back in 2015, 2016, when we were first creating this, there was a, uh, and still is a very popular tool called PowerView uh, by Will Schroeder. PowerView had this incredible capability of collecting, you know, 
information from LDAP or information from other systems joined to a domain like who belongs to the administrators group, who belongs to the remote des desktop users group, who's logged on to each computer. And being able to collect all that information was like one half of the problem. And the other half is what we created Bloodhound for. Without Bloodhound, we were able to access all this information just like anybody else can uh, in a domain authenticated context. But we were left with just lists and lists and lists of information that had no intelligence put into it. It had uh, no way for uh, any kind of automated analysis of that information. And literally we experimented with like Excel pivot tables in trying to yeah. extract. I don't think you're the only one. On I, I don't, yeah. I don't oh, think yeah. you're the only one. Like Adam Boileau, you know, my co-host on the weekly show, like was telling me that before Bloodhound came along, you know, he'd had a go at trying to do this himself sure. with hack together scripts. And it was, it was awful because you really need to build a proper graph if you want to analyze this stuff properly. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think like, like with a lot of things, when we put the tool out there, we definitely heard from a lot of people like, you know, oh, I definitely tried to do this same thing or I, I did the same thing and I have a similar project over here. So like there was definitely this need. common yeah. problem and common need that a lot of people saw and we uh, we solved it as best as we could uh, with, yeah. with Bloodhound and we sold it as best well, kind of, we could kind of, it's, it's funny, I was watching, I've been watching the, the third season of True Detective and there was a scene that popped up. Yeah. I, I just finished it actually. And there's a scene that popped up where, you know, the detective there, he's got reams and reams of paper. He's looking at phone records and he's sitting there with his highlighter going back between pages. And I just think, geez, you know, because this was set in, you know, 1980 or whatever. Thinking that's probably how you would have done it in 1980, you know, thank God for Multigo. And I guess, you know, it's, it's trying to solve that same problem, right? Which is going from a bunch of flat lists of information about users and trying to create something um, more intelligent with it. Exactly. The, the way that I explained this problem to my friend who has a proper computer science education, unlike me, as <laughs> uh, I told him, we have all this data. Why can't I put the data into the computer and have the computer tell me what to do? This is mm. why we created these things. Why can't I have that work? And he clued me in to the world of graph theory and kind of like set us off on the races to creating the thing. Why don't you explain graph theory for those who are not au fait? Yeah. Graph theory is a part of a branch of mathematics called combinatorics. And it is something that you use all the time, whether you know it or not. Uh, for example, if you're using Google Maps, if you're using navigation, even, even the packets that transmit from one system to another all of this uses graph theory. And the, the fundamental building blocks of graph theory are very simple. You basically have two different types of building blocks. You have vertices, or what are otherwise called nodes, or you could think of those as entities. And the other is you have uh, what are called edges, or you might call those relationships or connections. And from those two very, very basic building blocks, we can create graph databases that then thinks to graph algorithms that are actually 
pretty old. Some of them are a century old or more. But because of these very basic building blocks and because of these very elegant algorithms, we can do exactly what I said earlier. Is we can take this disconnected data, design a graph, put it into a graph database that runs on a computer, and then have the computer run these algorithms to answer very, very difficult questions for us in a way that is actually very simple in practice. How do I get yeah. from Seattle to New York? Go here, go there, go here, go there. Looking at that on a map and seeing it visually, it's so easy to understand. That's graph theory. That's, that's how graphs work. Easy. I mean, great, great description there. Now, originally when you launched this tool, I mean, SpectreOps, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, red teaming, pen testing company, right? So definitely has the whiff of a tool that was built to make your jobs easier. Um, that was also like, hey, other people might want to use this because it started out open source, right? But I'm guessing That's the correct. original, I, I, I'm guessing the original idea behind this was to help with red team engagements and, you know, to help you on tests. Why don't you walk us through like, you know, concretely how you would actually wind up using it? I mean, you get on a, you get on a workstation and then what? Sure. So the, the way that we tried to design the tool is so that it is as easy as possible for the situation that you describe. So I'm a pen tester. I'm a red teamer. Here's how I work. Here are the existing tools that I use. Here's how they work and the limitations around them. For example, C2 agents, C2 profiles are all these different limitations that come into play when you're trying to create tooling for red teamers. So the basic gist of it is you have access to a host. You run a data collection program uh, in this instance called Sharphound. And that data collection program does all the data collection for you. You don't have to worry about anything. In fact, if you're running on this on a domain join system and you're running it from a domain join user context, you don't even have to provide credentials. You literally <laughs> can run sharppound.exe and it will do everything for you. It will discover the domain controllers. It will discover the domain join systems. It will run through that, that list of systems and collect the data that it needs. It will deal with, uh, you know, domain controller errors. You know, if you're, if you're running into LDAP exhaustion or if you're getting backed off by the domain controller, it will deal with all of that for you. So literally type sharppound.exe into the keyboard, hit enter and wait, go get a cup of coffee, come back. You're gonna have some files that will be output by Sharphound, and these are JSON files. Take those JSON files, drag and drop them into the Bloodhound interface. The Bloodhound interface behind the scenes, it translates that JSON information into what are called cipher statements to put the information into the graph database. Once that's done, you are at Google Maps. You have created for yourself a Google Maps application for the environment that you reside in. You can look up computers, you can look up users, and you can find out how privileged is this user or how many admins are on this computer and who are they? Where is this domain admin logged on? Who were the admins on those systems? Or just very, very, very simply, I'm on this computer. I wanna to get to domain admin. Click, click, go. So we tried to design the UX from collection to analysis to be as simple as possible and also to fall in line with all of the restrictions that are in place for 
uh, a red teamer or a pen tester with operating through a C2 channel with having to re reside totally in memory and, and all these other considerations that red teamers have to worry about, but the you know legitimate admins or auditors don't really have to worry about. Yeah. So what about, um, you know, so, so, so when you hit navigate, right, like let's stick with the Google maps, uh, you know, when you, when you click go, what might a typical first step be in an escalation path as determined by bloodhound? So something that's going to be very common is that as a red teamer or as a pen tester, you're going to get some kind of initial access and maybe the user who executed your payload, maybe they are not in uh, IT. Maybe they don't have anything to do with managing the IT systems. So the they're level low of privilege, privilege. Yeah, they're yeah. low privilege or they're supposed to be low privilege. <laughs> yeah. However, in Active Directory, the primary group for every user by default is going to be domain users. Everyone's a domain user. And that group, there's nothing preventing somebody out there from giving that group some privilege somewhere else. So a very, very common first step is that the attack path will say, hey, you belong to the domain users group. And guess what? Somebody added that group to the local admins group on this one system over here. On this file then, share box in a cupboard that everybody's forgotten about. Exactly. Everybody forgot about it 15 years ago. And we've gone through eight different, uh, you know, we, we, we've got we've we've cycled through our entire IT management staff eight times and so no one has any clue that thing exists no one has uh, an, a responsibility or an expectation to find that themselves uh, even if they did it's really hard to understand the impact of that so these things just persist for years for decades and then it turns out that oh hey somebody with a little bit more privilege logged on to that system today so, so you can what, grab use... their hash and crack it, that sort of thing? Sure, sure. Yeah. You, could, you could grab their hash, you could crack it, you could, you could extract the clear text cred uh, with Mimicats. Or oh, yeah. if you don't want to do any of that, you can just inject into a process that that user is also running on that system and then just ride the tokens associated with that process. And you don't have to worry about stealing hashes or cracking passwords or anything like that. You, you are that user running in the process started by that user. So it couldn't, couldn't be easier to turn admin rights into control of other users who are logged onto the system. And at that point, it just kind of becomes a snowball effect. You just do that over and over and over. This is something that historically- But, but, but we, you do it over and over and over. And in this case, you have a map. So once you've done exactly, it 10 times, exactly, you are where you yeah. want to be, right? Yeah. Instead yeah. of instead you of just exactly blindly fumbling go. around and and not being quite sure what you're doing, I guess is the point. Which is what we did for a long time. We and other teams I mean, if did you think about this, you know, you, time. you could almost call Bloodhound like a red teaming productivity tool, right? Oddly enough. Yeah. Yeah. The the first time I showed Raphael Mudge uh, Bloodhound, he called it a force multiplier for red teams. And I've always remembered yeah. that. And I think it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I, as I mentioned, like the first time I saw this, it was Pipes uh, talking about it at a small conference in Queensland. And he was inspired by Rob Joyce's talk. Uh, you know, Rob Joyce was still leading TAO and had just done that talk at a conference about here's how you give us a hard time as TAO, you know, things like uh, using multi-factor authentication and doing this and doing that. And, you know, 
Pipes did a similar story, a similar um, uh, presentation where he's like, here as a red teamer is how you can make my life hard. And here's some tools you want to look at. And one of them was Bloodhound. And this is a long time ago. So it was it was fresh, babby, new Bloodhound, little blood puppy. Uh, let's, let's think of it that yeah. way, right? So obviously over the last, you know, half a decade or so, uh, Bloodhound has become, you know, an extremely popular tool among people who do offensive security work. I'd imagine it's become a popular tool among adversaries as well, because that's just the nature of the sure. beast. But now, you know, this is a software tool that you're taking seriously as a business. Um, you know, this is this is not just an open source tool anymore. You've got Bloodhound Enterprise. Now, what is Blood Enterprise, uh, Bloodhound Enterprise for? Can you tell us what you actually do with something like this in an enterprise context that doesn't involve red teaming? Yeah, so when we put out the free and open source version of Bloodhound back in 2016, we realized, and I think a lot of other people also very quickly realized, that while the red team use case, the offensive use case for this technology was was pretty interesting, the defensive use case for this was way more compelling. And so free and open source Bloodhound, it's very, very effective at getting people to understand what the actual problem is. And the problem, in short, is that all these different, seemingly unconnected configurations, they actually do connect. And the free version of the software is very good at showing the impact of those configurations through like discrete one at a time attack paths. With the enterprise software, with the commercial software, what we're trying to do is we're trying to understand how do those attack paths emerge? How did they get there? How can we help customers solve this problem of how the attack paths get there in the first place, how they get so incredibly dangerous how and how they persist over time. So those are really the big three things that we're trying to solve with the commercial software. And how do and how does an enterprise typically use that? I mean, they're using this as an analysis tool, right? So they'll grab it, they'll run it, they'll take the output, they'll play around with it and say, well, obviously that's a misconfiguration and go sort of sort that out and then just chip away at the issue like that. Is that the typical use? Yeah, I would say that the typical experience for our customers is, first of all, usually people come into this and say, you know, yeah, we, we you know, we've been having red teams come in every every year, and you know, we we use this other software, and we you know, we have a pretty firm grip on uh, what our tier zero is, and you know, we we think we do least privilege pretty well. But but do you? But do yeah, and and usually, <laughs> I I would say ninety nine times out of a hundred. Uh, no, Bloodhound people... is obviously the sort of tool that you run the first time and a bunch of horrible evil spirits fly out of it. Yes, right? that's that's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's, it's sort of it's sort of like the first, yeah, the first Nessa scan someone would do in the early two thousands or something would have the same thing, which is like, yeah, there be bad spirits. Exactly, and and a lot of times, a lot of times, the findings that are produced by the software for the customer, they are usually they usually fall into one of two categories. One is we had no idea that that configuration was there and it's going to be super easy for us to get rid of that. So maybe domain users was given full control of the default domain policy and group policy. Okay, super dangerous. We didn't know that yeah. was there. Here's the impact <laughs> of that. It's really bad. 
Let's get rid of it right now. Let's get rid of it right now. And yeah. the the second category is, is usually where it's it's again we had no idea that that configuration was there. We're not sure if that configuration needs to be there. So we need to take a little bit of time, understand, are we going to break some kind of critical business process? Are we going to break somebody's access who actually needs that access? And so there are these more subtle configurations where it's not exactly clear cut, like, you know, we can or cannot get rid of that right now. So one of the design decisions that we have with our product is we provide we provide a risk statement for each configuration, which is like, hey, this group, which happens to be domain users, has full control of this group policy object. We analyze all of the attack paths that go in and out of both those objects. And we understand and we present and we tell the user, if you don't get rid of this, 99.8% of your systems have a path into tier zero through this one particular connection. And that's, so you're actually that's able bad. to quantify that. You're actually able to quantify yeah. that for customers. I mean, God, that's going to look yeah. good on a PowerPoint on a PowerPoint slide when you've got to convince someone higher than you that this is something that's worth doing. That's exactly the point. So yeah. that's a, that's precisely <laughs> the point. So in my in my own experience, I, I come from red team pen test, IT audit, and then IT break fix background. I can't tell you how many times I tried to sell somebody best practice or sell somebody on disabling SMB V1 or enforcing SMB signing. And so many times the conversation comes down to well, why should we do that? Well, it's it's best practice, and so we we have this we have this uh, backstop of best practice that we back into so frequently, and it is so easy to say no when somebody is hearing a recommendation that is just couched in best practice. It is very hard to say no when you are being told if you don't make this change and somebody gets access to any computer in your network they're going to be able to compromise a tier zero asset it's very hard to say no to that so that's precisely why we do that empirical assessment of what is the impact of each of these configurations because the person who's using our software is very unlikely to be the same person who has the authority to make the configuration so, change. So this was actually, you, you know, this is freaky because my literally my next question was going to be who's buying this within orgs? Is it Offsec or is it IAM, right? And that's kind of what you're getting at there because I, I was just thinking about that and I'm like, yeah, great, you're Offsec. You've bought this. You've got a whole bunch of stuff that you've got to convince the directory team to do and they're not going to want to do it because stay in your lane, right? Like that, that's a common thing, right? Absolutely Precisely. a common thing. Um, and then the directory people, do they want to really be making more work for themselves when, hey, defending the network's kind of the SOC team's job, not really ours, right? So so where are organizations actually plugging this into to the enterprise? There are differences, but I would say that most commonly our buyer is going to be somebody who is like a director of uh, IT security. And so it's usually going to be somebody whose role and responsibility includes pointing out issues like this. And so a lot of times the buyer will already have been working with some kind of vulnerability management software. 
uh, and they've already stood up and have the vocabulary built around vulnerability management processes within. I guess I guess from a from a sort of internal processes point of view, it's 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 a similar it's a similar proposition, isn't it? It's very similar, and so there's there's a lot of language that we try to use to ride that momentum and the uh, like 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 we have critical risk rating. We have high risk rating. We have medium risk rating. And we use a color coding that is like very, very similar to what you would see in a vulnerability management program. So something else that we took into consideration with how we designed just these very fundamental, very valuable, but very fundamental parts of the product. It's like on the red team side at Spectre Ops, we have seen over and over and over how maybe we were brought in by security Maybe we were bought in by the SOC or an audit capability, but the relationship internally between that organization and identity and access management or directory services, a lot of times those relationships are not very productive. They're not very positive. Mm. And a lot of times it's the red team comes in, they beat the out of the active directory people the active directory people look bad they don't really have much incentive to play ball so in our experience as, as an entire organization we have i think we've been very good at helping foster much more positive much more productive relationships between those teams internally which is great for the organization yeah, even something as simple as those metrics you were talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, to be able to take that to the directory team and go, look, you know, we've we've been able to quantify this, man. Have a look at this. You know, because it's genuinely interesting and stuff that they would probably think is worth worthy of attention. Um, Definitely. But I mean, that I got another question here, which is, you know, you've obviously been doing some deals and 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 working with some very large organizations on this. Directories are unwieldy beasts, particularly at an organization that's been around for you know any more than 20 years, right? Like it's going to be a mess. We all know that. So how clean can you make it? Because it it strikes me that it's also similar to vulnerability management and, you know, identification in that you cannot eradicate vulnerabilities from from a corporate network or a corporate environment. Like it it is not possible to have none of them. Um, Some of them are going to hang around. There's going to be a certain amount of time that the most critical ones hang around before they're patched, et cetera, et cetera. So how similar is it in the in the world of directories, right? Like, is there an end state where you've seen a large enterprise actually get to a point where their where their directory is completely properly configured and there are very few attack paths? And the ones that are there, you know, they can build some compensating controls around them and everything's just great. Elephant stamp, you know, five stars. Does that ever happen? One of my one of my personal goals when we started working on this product, we've been very lucky in that we have been able to work with some of the best defended organizations in the world where you get a shell on a system in there, you're going to be evicted in 30 seconds or less. The defenders are that good. Or even if your shell lives, they are so good at, attack path management that you just don't really have any options for for escalating your privileges to any meaningful level. So one of my personal goals with this product was, was to, to make put it that sort of thing within the reach of ordinary human beings. Precisely, precisely. Yeah. yeah. Like like why why can't we replicate that success in other organizations that 
maybe can't afford to build a 200 person IT security team who just full time, that's all they're doing every day, all day. Why can't we put that within reach of a, a credit union or a bank that has two IT people full time and they are doing literally everything in IT. Plus now they have to run the HVAC system and they do the prox badges on the doors. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. For mere mortals, it should be accessible for that. So, so to answer your question, as far as, you know, what do we see when we first launched, to be honest with you, I was a little anxious. I, I had a lot of anxiety around our product creating findings for our users and the users not, not actioning the findings. I, ha I had a lot of anxiety around that. The product keeps track over time of uh, like a composite attack path risk rating for a domain. And most of the time people start off at about 90% or higher, meaning that 90% of the systems have a path to tier zero or more. So my, my anxiety was that we were going to see organizations, maybe they'll go from 90 to 85 over the course of six months. And then maybe, maybe after a couple of years, maybe they'll be at like 50%, you know, and like, and kind of be happy. That's not what happened. And that's not what happens either. What, what happens is usually people start off at about 90, 95 or a hundred percent risk rating. Meaning if an, if an attacker gets access, they will be able to get to tier zero. People are able to get their risk rating down to about 10, 15% in a couple of months, sometimes a couple of but weeks. But what, what does that look like, right? So if I'm an attacker, I go on one of those boxes and I drop the open source bloodhound, am I still going to be able to find an attack path that is achievable and trivial? You know, even when you're down at that 15%, you know, like I'm just wondering about the dual use nature here, you know? Yeah. So there's there's a couple there's a couple of points there. So let's say that you know we get down to about 15%. So in other words, 15% of the systems in the network have a path into tier 0. So as an attacker, you're still going to be able to gain the intelligence to know what that 15% of systems is and you're going to be able to know who has access to those systems. So you can turn your tactics back towards social engineering and you can target the people who have access to those systems, the people who administer those systems. You can go back to social engineering but, and but turn... Putting putting extra control on 15% is easier than putting extra controls on 95%, I think is the point, right? Precisely, precisely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's like... If we can create, I mean, it's, it reminds points. me. It re, sorry, sorry to cut you off there, but it reminds me of conversations I've had with uh, Ryan Calumber at Proofpoint, where they've got some really interesting metrics on people who just can't help themselves clicking on things, right? Oh yeah. And you know what they can do is go to their customers and say, "Here are your users who cannot resist clicking on things. Go put extra controls on them, or put them in this special little padded room domain group because they're going to get owned, right?" And and. Yeah, that's just a really sensible. I mean, one of the reasons I like dealing with Proofpoint because they do a lot of stuff with us is because they're not trying to be uber elite ninjas. Um, they're like a massive harm minimization utility for attacks at scale mm -hmm. and stuff. But they come up with ideas like this, and I think they're they're quite cool. And this sounds like similar thinking. Very similar thinking. I I think about users who would click on that kind of thing. I I think of them as kind of like powder kegs, and I think about it that way because over the course of years of doing red team assessments, I made a living by fishing those people and, and getting initial access to their systems. 
and then turning that into full domain compromise. Uh, so they, they turn into this kind of powder keg for the network. So I totally get where you're coming from, where you can use this as a tool to guide uh, you know, your, your security program. You can direct investment with it. Like that's very valuable. There's a number of valuable things you can do with this tool, certainly. How does the emergence of things like Azure AD complicate this? Because you mentioned at the start that, you know, uh, Azure is something you got to think about here uh, or, or something that you, that you deal with. Like I'm not super au fait with the differences between Azure AD and just plain old, you know, on-prem AD. What are, what are the differences and how does it complicate what you're doing? Yeah, the differences, the similarities basically stop at the name. So you have Active Directory, you have Azure Active Directory. That's about where the similarities stop, uh, at least as far as how the mechanics of the systems work. Now, I say that, but what's also true is that they are both directory services products. They both use role-based access control, and they are both very easy to configure into very dangerous states. They are very easy I mean, for this an is, this to... Is, yeah, this is something I've said on the show a million times, right, lately, is that... Um, you know, directories are inherently a security problem kind of thing. Like any complicated directory with a whole bunch of roles and permissions and users, like it doesn't matter what the tech stack is. It's always going to have some of these fundamental issues. Definitely. And, and that's no fault of the admin. And it may not be a fault necessarily of the vendor who created the direct directory service product either. Uh, definitely the, the party who benefits from that complexity is an adversary. And the defenders don't, really have great options for understanding what are the what is the real impact of any particular configuration no matter if you're talking about active directory no matter if you're talking about azure if you're talking about okta if you're talking about aws the impact of any particular configuration is so hard to understand without some kind of graph-based technology because everything is seen in isolation or, or like John Lambert says, you have lists of configurations that people worry about and they don't see how they all connect. But are the types of misconfigurations that have a high security impact in normal Active Directory, are they present also in Azure AD? Is it the same type of starting proposition, just a different stack? Like I, that's what I can't get my head around. Did they fix some of these yeah. issues? Are there some issues that are inherent to on, on-prem AD that just aren't there for Azure? Yeah, there, there are a couple of fundamental design differences between on-prem AD and Azure AD that have resulted I believe in a huge security posture gain for Microsoft customers. So earlier we were talking about how domain users, someone gives that that group local admin somewhere, there's nothing you can do to uh, prevent that. You know, it just, it happens and it happens all the time. But why does that group exist in the first place? Why does domain users exist? And why does everybody get added to it in the first place? And why can that group be granted privileges? In Azure AD, uh, I don't know how conscious of a decision this was, but the similar kind of situation doesn't exist. So there is no catch-all security group that everybody just automatically gets added to. There are principles or identifiers that are common across uh, all principles in Azure AD, but that's not the type of principle that can result in that having some kind of privilege that it shouldn't have. That is a huge difference. And it results in 
a enormous difference in the the impact of attack paths in environments that are only Azure. If it's a purely Azure environment, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but everyone, everyone, <laughs> yeah, everyone glues them together, though. I mean, I, you know, that's 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 the sad that's thing. That's exactly I mean, right. The, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, these new, um, there's some Greenfields enterprises that are only using Azure AD, and you know, hopefully in 20 years from now, that'll be the starting uh, standard. But I mean, I mean, I'm guessing that um, that uh, even if someone's pure Azure AD, there's still something to be gained from doing some directory analysis. Absolutely. Uh, so you know. Even if somebody is purely Azure AD, it is still possible to configure the environment in such a way that most or all users have an ability to compromise tier zero in Azure. Uh, for example, global admin, or just having some other control of the tenant object, for example. So those, those attack paths, they do exist. They are there. It's just, it requires a little bit more work on the admin's side to make them as dangerous as they are in a hybrid environment or in just vanilla Active Directory. Yeah, yeah. But I guess, you know, like if you're still going to have on-prem assets, as we've already established, you are gluing it together to old-fashioned Active Directory and, you know, back to square one, basically. So look, yeah. um, for the last part of this, right, because we've been talking a while now and it's all great, very interesting stuff. Um, but I guess for the last last part of this, right, like you look at a technology like this and when you started doing it, to my knowledge, you were the first, right? Doing this type of analysis. Since then, a bunch of companies have done similar stuff, I guess, um, maybe with a different focus. Some of them, like there was one, funnily enough, sold to, sold to Proofpoint not so long ago, an Israeli one that uh, basically combined elements of what you do. So elements of directory analysis with elements of deception, which actually seems like not such a bad idea, right? So you can analyze an attack path or attack paths, figure out where you can actually put a really tempting bunch of credentials or whatever in, you know, in the way of an attack path, right? So that next time you run, blood, run Bloodhound, you know, um, someone is going to want to go through that path. And then you can turn that set of creds or that user account or whatever into some sort of canary, right? And that gives you a solid alert that, hey, somebody is trying to use this account that's a made-up account that's only there because it looks like a juicy one. Is that something that you're exploring? Because I find that, you know, everyone loves utilities like this that you can use to do analysis and steer decision-making and remediate problems. But if there's one thing people love, it's tech like this that you can quote-unquote operationalize, right? And and sort of plummeting, you know, help help you setting up things like like alerting and whatnot. Is that something you're looking at? We're definitely looking at how to integrate this software with other solutions. Uh, so what we are trying to do is we are trying to be the best at attack path management. And so there are lots of temptations as far as, well, maybe we could add vulnerability data into our, into our data set. We could have that, or maybe we could, we could do like the deception thing, for example, we could do that like in the product ourselves. There are all these different temptations, but I think, you know, one of the keys to our success is focus and focus means saying no to things. So yeah. saying, saying no to deception or missing patches or, or saying, you know, not yet to AWS, for example, it doesn't mean that our product can't be used to serve 
those purposes. And so we are looking at integrations for, uh, for example, uh, we have an integration with Splunk so that you can consume data into your, into your Splunk from our data set and then turn that into alerts in your existing alert pipeline. What, what sort so, of alert are you going to get with the benefit of data that's coming out of Bloodhound? Sure. So let's let's say you're you're able to whittle down your composite risk rating, you know, to like ten percent or maybe even like five percent or something like that. What you could do is you could set up a Splunk uh, agent, I guess you would say, to you know collect data from our software. Our software is keeping track over time of what that risk rating is. So you could have an alert that says, "Hey." This, this risk changed and your risk from, rating just yeah, jumped up exactly. by ten percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or or that's more. That's a different type know? of that's a different type of seam alert. I got to be honest, because that's not based off attacker behavior. That's a detection based on someone doing something that is causing a problem. Someone authorized exactly. most of the time, right? Yeah, that's exactly. cool. That's really yep. cool. Yeah. So we're not trying to make a we're not trying to make a seam. Uh, we're not trying to compete in the alerting game. There are people who do that very, very, very well. And that's true for a lot of other well, things as well. Well, they 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 do it they do it better than I think we would be able to replicate in a reasonable amount of time. Yes, 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 yes. So anyway, we're gonna you know, we're gonna, we're gonna be careful. Be, we're gonna gotta add the yeah. qualifier there. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, we're we're gonna try to be the best at what we are doing. We're gonna let other people focus on what they are doing, and where it is possible, we will have integrations that we will create or just generic API endpoints that we will make available that our data can be consumed by other solutions for whatever purpose you want. Yep. You're the specialists. This is your exactly. thing. Here's our API. Don't need to complicate Precisely. your life. I get it. Precisely. I get it. I get yep. it. Yep. All right, Andy Robbins, thank you so much for that. That was all really, really fascinating. Uh, I think that's a great overview of Bloodhound and Bloodhound Enterprise for the listeners. I think they're really going to uh, find that valuable. So yeah, thanks for joining me, mate. And we'll be talking uh, again later in the year. My pleasure. That was Andy Robbins from SpectreOps there talking about Bloodhound and Bloodhound Enterprise. You can find them at bloodhoundenterprise.io and uh, yeah, you can always just grab the open source version too and take it for a spin and see how you go. Definitely a worthwhile exercise. Definitely something I recommend everyone does. But that is it for this edition of the Soapbox podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.